Welcome to the second episode in a special three-episode mini-series of the Diversity Imperative. My name is Hannah Conchu, and I'm a grain farmer from Clooney, Alberta. This summer, my co-host Aaron and I are talking to the authors behind the articles and books that inspired us with the hope that you'll consider adding them to your summer reading list. And as always, we are all about stewarding the agriculture industry's most important resource, people. And I'm Erin Gowerluck, and I lead a national grower association in the nation's capital. Our goal each episode will be to dig into some great conversations that go beyond 280 characters and that seek to inspire a broader dialogue, engaging all people in our sector, regardless of gender, race, and ethnicity, sexual orientation, or ability. Through candid and rich conversations which consider a variety of perspectives, we look forward to exploring ways to overcome barriers and make diversity and inclusion a topic that everyone is comfortable talking about. For today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Sarah Carter, who is a professor and Henry Marshall Tory Chair in the Department of History and Classics and Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. Sarah obtained her BA Honours and MA from the University of Saskatchewan and her PhD from the University of Manitoba. She taught at the University of Calgary from 1992 to 2006, when she was named Henry Marshall Tory Chair at the University of Alberta. In 2020, she was awarded the Canada Council Killam Prize for Outstanding Achievements within the Field of Humanities. She has published six monographs, including her 2016 book, Imperial Plots, Women, Land, and the Spade Work of British Colonialism on the Canadian Prairies. This book won several prizes, including the Governor General's History Award for Scholarly Research. Her most recent monograph published in 2020 is Ours by Every Law of Right and Justice, Women in the Vote in the Prairie Provinces. Her most recent co-edited collection was also published in 2020, Compelled to Act, Histories of Women's Activism in Western Canada. She has served as editor of the Canadian Historical Review and is the co-editor of the McGill Queen's Press Indigenous and Northern Studies series. Sarah has had such a distinguished career, even being named a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada in 2007. Her work has been said to have greatly contributed to reshaping our historical understanding of the prairies, including the exclusion of First Nations people and women as the West was settled. And I'll say that that is exactly how I feel after reading her first book, Lost Harvests, Prairie Indian Reserve Farmers and Government Policy, which was first published in 1990 and which will be the center of our discussion today. We also have a special guest with us today, Dr. Melissa Arcand, Assistant Professor in Soil Biogeochemist from the University of Saskatchewan, who you will remember from episode six in season one. Melissa Arcand is a soil biogeochemist who researches soil health and nutrient cycling in agroecosystems. She received her PhD in soil science from the University of Saskatchewan and conducted her postdoctoral research with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Melissa grew up on a farm in the Muskeg Lake Cree Nation in central Saskatchewan. She teaches and is an academic advisor for students in the Ganaway Thetan ASCII program designed to train students to work in resource management and land governance in Indigenous communities across the country. This is a great place to remind listeners that if you haven't heard episode six from season one, Understanding from the Land, do go back and listen because it's super complimentary to what we're going to discuss today with Dr. Carter. 
or go back and listen after this episode if you're already here. But I would say that learning about how the nation that Melissa hails from, the Muskeg Lake Cree Nation, and how um, they were impacted by some of the government policies that we'll discuss today, and hearing about how Melissa is leading initiatives at the U of S to revitalize agriculture being led by First Nation leaders and farmers is absolutely worth the time to listen. So that's my shameless plug to go back to that episode uh, to listen if you haven't already had the chance. Well, and I think, you know, Hannah, you're right, because it's also worth noting that we did get a tremendous amount of feedback on that conversation with Dr. Arcand. We did. Uh, There was so much appreciation for the conversation we had in that episode. And Melissa also recommended to us that we go on to read Lost Harvest after that initial conversation. So, of course, it went straight to the top of our reading list. So she gets all the cred for that and really the inspiration for us to reach out to have um, Sarah join us. So, so much gratitude to both Dr. Sarah Carter and um, Dr. Melissa Arcand for the conversation that we get to share with you today. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to acknowledge that we have very heavy hearts after learning about the confirmation of approximately 751 more unmarked graves, of which a large percentage is likely children, located near the residential school that ran on the Cowessess First Nation in Saskatchewan. To use the words of Dr. Nell Wyman, who is the Chief Medical Officer of the First Nations Health Authority in BC, it's time for a knowledge reckoning, a time for us as non-Indigenous allies to do the heavy lifting and to learn what's happened in Canada and why things are the way they are today. And we need to do this while First Nations people heal from the trauma that they are experiencing. So digging into this book, Lost Harvests, is part of our commitment to that. So thanks to all of you for listening and learning along with Aaron and I. Let's get to the episode. Welcome to the Diversity Imperative, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us. And welcome back to the show, Melissa. We're thrilled to have you join us again. This is a real, a real treat to have you back. Thank you. It's really good to be here. So the main premise of your work, Sarah, which led to your PhD dissertation and Lost Harvests, was to research a widely held belief at the time of Canada's early development, the start of colonization, which was that First Nations people, and I'm going to use air quotes here, could not be convinced of the necessities of agriculture, and that as a culture, they were incompatible with farming because of failings of character, if I can summarize it that way. And this is a belief that I would say has persisted since that time. So what experiences led you to interrogate this widely held belief and to seek evidence that First Nations people were keen to farm and establish agriculture on reserves in the 1870s and beyond? Thank you very much, Hannah, for the question. And um, thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Erin. I'm really pleased to, to join you today and to talk about this work that is now over 30 years old. And and it did um, begin as a thesis that I was researching, I guess by about 1982. So um, it's uh, it's interesting to revisit it, so thank you. Yes, I came to see uh, that the idea that indigenous people were unable and unwilling to farm, I began to see that as a deeply ingrained prairie settler myth uh, passed down through generations. And it went like this, Everything was done to help and heaps of money was was spent, but it was of no use. Indigenous First Nations people did not want to and could not farm. It was absolutely hopeless from the start. But I began to see this more and more as a convenient myth that settlers drew upon. It put them in a good light for having supposedly tried to help. And it justified, this myth justified taking over Indigenous lands. 
And what really the experience that made me see it as a myth was that not too far into my research, I was seeing quite a different picture. It became very clear that Prairie Indigenous people were willing and anxious to establish new economies based on agriculture. And they expressed this from the time of the 1870s treaties and even in some cases well before. I also was found that there were significant advances in agriculture by First Nations, particularly in Manitoba, uh, well before the treaties, for example, at the St. Peter's uh, uh, community. Um, and I found that First Nations agriculturalists had helped the first settlers with, with their crops and helped to keep them alive, such as the Selkirk settlers. And my research indicated that it was the Canadian federal government, in fact, that was reluctant to live up to treaty promises to assist um, with establishing agriculture. And so it really turned on its ear the ideas that Indigenous people were reluctant. It was, it was the federal government that was reluctant. And just to go on a bit about the sort of experiences or influence, I wasn't alone at the time that I began this um, research in the approach that I was taking. As academics and scholars, we always stand on the shoulders of others who have come before us. And I was building on the work of, of people like Arthur J. Ray and his book, Indians in the Fur Trade, was really an eye-opener for me. It was about the era just before my book, Lost Harvests, begins. But it's about the Cree and Assiniboine in the fur trade and their rapid adjustment to changing economic circumstances and environments. And also the work of Red Deer historian John Tobias was really critical for, um, for my whole generation in, in his several path-breaking articles. And, and the work of John Leonard Taylor, he was challenging the idea that agriculture was imposed on an unwilling people. And then um, an anthropologist by the name of Noel Dickett, Simon Fraser, he was onto this as well and published a really influential article called An Opportunity Lost, the Reserve Agricultural Program. So I wasn't alone in the wilderness or coming up. We always work um, and build on others. But what was really important to me was looking farther afield at sort of international literature on comparative colonial uh, settings and the work of historians who were re-examining the so-called failure of African agriculture. The old argument there promoted by settlers was quite the same that Africans would not adapt to the new situation and couldn't make changes and couldn't, couldn't, um, couldn't adjust to the conditions under colonialism. But a new generation of historians was arguing right at this time that I was preparing for my comprehensive exams. The African farmers readily and enthusiastically embraced new methods and technologies and their agriculture was deliberately arrested and curtailed by colonial forces. Um, designed to check their agriculture and enhance the economy and agriculture of the settlers. And in the case of South Africa and Kenya that I studied by curtailing African farming, this ensured a labor supply to the settler farms. And then I was shocked to learn, for example, in Kenya, the African farmers themselves were prohibited under law from growing the most lucrative crop, which was coffee. So you can see there uh, this this deliberate curtailment, and I found a lot of parallels here in Canada. You write that the book is a product of 1980s Winnipeg, where you were pursuing your PhD in the Department of History at the University of Manitoba, and that you experienced resistance in a number of ways. 
including friends showing disregard for your research and your PhD supervisor, at least at being skeptical that First Nations people had a desire to support themselves through farming. You also welcomed your daughter onto the scene during your PhD at a time when not many thought you could be both a mother and a scholar. It was not all smooth sailing. So tell us a bit about the journey of writing Lost Harvests. Well, thank you. That's a good question. I could go on and on forever because there are just so many um, twisting paths and um, dead ends and, <laughs> and, and influences. Um, I certainly had no idea when I entered the PhD program that I was going to embark on a topic like this. And I'm not sure what I thought, except I was unemployed and living in Winnipeg. And I thought, well, maybe I'll try the PhD program. <laughs> I had come there hoping to work for Parks Canada, actually. And my spouse, my partner at the time we later married, he was working for Parks Canada. He got the main job. And it was sort of government policy at the time that they weren't going to hire, you know, both of you. So I had to sort of root around and find something else to do in the long, cold winters of Winnipeg. And honestly, that's how I ended up in the PhD program, sort of. I had already worked on an MA at Saskatchewan and um, University of Saskatchewan. I had my honors there. And my interest in colonial history uh, and the early West had begun there. I worked on Methodist missionaries and their misrepresentations um, of Indigenous people through their, through their publications. Um, and I argued that these missionaries helped create a widely accepted set of negative beliefs or representations of Indigenous people that were used to justify settler occupation of the land and the reserve system. And altogether, these missionaries justified taking away the land from them altogether. So though I already had that uh, interest underway when I began the PhD program. Um, Summer jobs at places like Fort Walsh in the Cypress Hills and Fort Battleford in Treaty 6 territory at, um, um, in, um, in Treaty 6 territory at Battleford. These were really influential um, moments in time for me as a young, I was already an honor student at that time, I think. And uh, how at these federal sites, it was just all about the masculine mounties moving west and, and imposing law and order. Uh, these were sites of huge indigenous uh, and ancient indigenous cultures and history, but really very little of that was being told. And eight uh, indigenous men had been hanged at Fort Battleford, but we weren't really allowed as guides to tell that story. We were supposed to sort of ignore that and not even encourage uh, the visitors to go down to the site where they were buried at that point, just underneath sort of a slab of cement. And the whole story of Sitting Bull and Big Bear was was floating around at, 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 at Fort Walsh, but it really was, again, the story of the heroic police. So these were, um, these were important influences on, on my thinking and just wanting to know more and wanting to dig deeper. And then I have an interest in agriculture. I know it was there from growing up on the prairies and my, my homesteading roots of my mother in um, Manitoba, um, although I was born and raised in, in Saskatoon. Um, and I always admired that my mother, though she was a magistrate and judge in Saskatoon, uh, could grade wheat. And she always said, oh, there was a nice spot to tether a cow. And that's because of her, you know, small town roots and her uh, homesteading uh, grandparents and so on. And her father had, um, her father had been a, a United Grain Growers um, elevator operator. 
And uh, so my grand, that was my grandpa. And my other grandpa worked for Robin Hood Oats. So it was a lot of sort of grain um, uh, influences. And then I worked in the um, late 1970s on the, the W.R. Motherwell Homestead in uh, Abernethy, Saskatchewan. And that was a lot of agricultural history. So that really introduced me to that and homesteading. And the whole issue of who gets land, who's denied land, who has massive amounts of land like, like Motherwell, and who has tiny little amounts of land like the neighboring Fowler Hills and others. Um, the story of the Fowler Hills wasn't even being told at the Motherwell place when at that point, um, although Mrs. Motherwell had been a, a really influential um, principal of the Fowler Hills School. And then I guess I have to recognize, I don't really do this, but my parents were both committed to social justice and interested in prairie history. And my father established in 1975, the Native Law Center at Saskatoon of the University of Saskatchewan. It's now the Indigenous Law uh, Center and also a summer program of Indigenous students. So in the 1970s, I really got to meet a lot of people, uh, young people who were coming through this program of legal education. And I met many who were, would become lawyers, judges and leaders and politicians uh, today. And this was really an important time in sort of shaking up and, and recognizing settler myths of, uh, of, of incapacity, just the, the, the people that I met through that program. And then a really critical moment was taking uh, Jerry Friesen's class um, as a PhD student in Prairie History. It was a full year course. We don't have full year courses anymore. And it's a shame because you could really dig into the sources and he expected us to write um, publishable essays. And uh, I did eventually publish what I wrote for him. And it was about the Dakota of, it's now called Sioux Valley, it was then called Oak River, and how they protested against the interference of, uh, of Indian affairs uh, in their farming and agriculture and cattle raising, particularly the pro protest over the permit system and the lack of freedoms that they had and how it was curtailing their interest in agriculture. And I guess you have to say that that got me on my way I was reading Department of Indian Affairs reports. This led me to Indian Commissioner Hayter Reed, his peasant farming policy, which really puzzled me. And, but I could see the parallels to what I was reading in Imperial and Commonwealth history. So this, publish, this paper was published in 1983 um, on the Oak River Dakota in Manitoba history. And from there, I thought I was gonna do Dakota agriculturalists because they had really interested me. They had much smaller reserves, they were not treaty people, but they were still subjected to so many of um, these uh, policies under the Indian Act uh, that was curtailing their interest in agriculture. But then I met an anthropologist by the name of Peter Douglas Elias, and he, had, he was working on a massive, massive manuscript on Dakota agriculture for the Dakota of Manitoba, for the Dakota Ojibwe Tribal Council, it was then called. And so I decided not to do that. And, but his work was really inspiring. And from all of that, I decided to focus on the Treaty 4 district because it seemed for various reasons, one that had been understudied at that time. And there was more attention to, to Treaty 6 in the work of a, a lot of others like Blair Stonechild. And, um, so that's how I came to do this. Uh, at least uh, those are some of the influences. It's, it's so wonderful to hear your story and your, your journey in writing the book, Sarah, your first book. Of course, you went on to um, write a, a number more. Yeah. But I want to ask about um, 
something that you said about the, the misrepresentations that you initially studied by um, brought forth by the Methodist missionaries. Uh-huh. When I was reading your book, um, my, my first initial shock and surprise came from the fact that the, some of the attitudes, the racist attitudes and perceptions towards First Nations people, they appear in the, the recordings in the literature, you know, f- from the earliest information that you're citing. And it's, I mean, I, you, can, you can hear some of the same things repeated today. And I'm not sure why that surprised me, but it did. I guess the, the fact that we haven't been able to sort of disrupt um, those ideas between now and then. Did you have any of that same shock as you were compiling your research? Yes, I, I did. Um, and I think that's why these Methodist missionaries, like it was not a popular topic at the time. Uh, and I remember being a, a very prominent professor of history at Manitoba. Um, wondered why on earth I'd worked on such a dead-end topic. But I, um, I had been struck as well reading these Methodist missionaries publications, how these were the exact sort of, um, uh, you know, misrepresentations, stereotypes, and really, let's just say racist views that I was hearing um, among acquaintances in, in, in Saskatchewan. And I, I think it really was working in a place like Maple Creek that had shown me uh, Fort Walsh's the closest town is Maple Creek. I mean, it just showed me what a sort of apartheid system we actually had in Saskatchewan where, I mean, they could not, uh, First Nations people could not uh, visit the home that I was, like the rooming house. The, she would not, the, 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 uh, the proprietor of our rooming house would not allow them in the house. They, they couldn't go to certain restaurants. They could not go, they could not get a room in a hotel. Like it was, that was quite an eye opener. And um yeah, and I just finished my honors, I think, at that point. And, and reading these Methodist missionaries, I just, I was quite astonished at that these were the same views I was hearing. And I began to see them as quite influential in that way. But then looking at the broader picture of sort of the, the broader British imperial context, I could see that mi- missionaries throughout the world were, were basically, this was, this was a sort of a rubber stamp, a way in which you, you could, you were diminishing the Indigenous people's rights to land was to create all of these myths and stereotypes about them. Yeah, Sarah, it's it's really great to talk to you and hear about um, how you came to this work. And I'm just, you know, one of the things that I was wondering about uh, as well as sort of reflecting back, you know, over the, you know, 30 years back and, and, and the career that you've since, you know, been able to develop as a historian, can you talk about how you, you know, you would approach this work now, um, you know, given, given, you know, your development as a historian and even given, you know, the current, uh, you know, state of the world that we're, that we're living in, in now as well. Um, how would this research look differently? How do you think the outcome of, of the book um, might look like if it were, if it were written today? Yes, it's a very good question. Um, I think, I think today, it is a different climate and um, a welcome one in many ways. I think I would have had a lot more community-based research um, and um, yes, I, I, I guess it's been my privilege since this book to get to know Pasqua's um, descendants of Chief, you know, prominent Chief Pasqua and Osupsu, descendants of Louis Osup and others. 
Um, and uh, I think that, that, that these kinds of insights that they would have provided would have been really interesting to include. Um, oral history was simply not accepted at the time when I was doing this. I tried to use at the time as many um, um, published oral histories as I could. I've got um, a number of them, particularly in the later chapters of the book, uh, but I didn't do any oral histories of my own and I would have probably been quite discouraged from doing so. That, that, that has changed a great deal in the field of history that it is not, um, it is seen as, as, a, as a credible source. And it's, you know, it seems like the dark ages, but it, it, it was not when I was uh, doing my uh, research. So collaboration, community-based um, oral histories. And um, I think even if I didn't do my own oral histories, I, I could have drawn further on those that had already been done. There's a great section there's a great uh, website with the University of Regina. It's called Our Space, and they have a, a well um, interviews that were done in sort of the 1980s and uh, maybe late 1970s for a film project that never actually then took place. But I've since just wished that I had used some of those. It just provides amazing insight into agriculture and all the forces that work to discourage indigenous farmers. Um, and he was from the Touchwood Hills uh, poor man. And he talks about the permit system and then his, his defiance of the permit system and the corruption of Department of Indian Affairs officials, many of them. So I think that that would be uh, the direction I would go in. Um, I might also do more comparative colonial. Um, yeah, so there's, there's many things that could still be done, and I hope that I, I, I wish others would pick up on this story um, because I did Treaty 4, and there's many other regional variations to this. Uh, for example, I have been working with Winona Wheeler for many years on a project that's just sort of limping along on Indigenous agriculture in Manitoba, but we've you know come up with quite a few interesting findings, and one is that... A lot of what I wrote here doesn't apply to Manitoba. They didn't really have farm instructors. Um, they were more groomed to become a, a seasonal labor force. And uh, their farming, they had, they had much smaller reserves to start with. And their farming was, they just had far less uh, acreages under cultivation per capita. Um, and there's, the, the past system was not applied to them. There was not the same level of surveillance. There's just quite a different picture in many ways than the one that I described here. Uh, so I do hope that um, people, new scholars, um, community members will pick up on this and, and examine other areas. Yeah, that's a really uh, great thing to hear from you. And, and um, just coincidentally, I was in the Cypress Hills over the, this weekend with some Indigenous scholars, um, including Tasha Hubbard from University of Alberta. Uh -huh. We were having conversations about how, you know, important your your work was to bring to light, you know, all of these policies and, you know, the consequences of them, but really talked about the need to um, shed light on what has happened since. And also, again, like you mentioned, yeah. In, in other areas as well. So there's, mm -hmm. a, you know, still so much work to be done. 
Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. Well, it must have been hot down there, or did you get a breeze? <laughs> we Luckily, we had a breeze, so there was enough cloud cover and a breeze that we didn't cook too badly, but yeah. um, but it was wonderful to be down there. There's oh, a I lot love it. Of, a lot of history and just yeah. a lot of, um, you know, you can, you can feel the importance of the place just by being there. Oh, yes, I know. I love it. Well, let's, let's turn to some of that information that you um, compiled on Treaty 4. So most of your, your work, like you have said, um, focuses on the Treaty 4 territory in present day Saskatchewan encompassing a number of Plains Cree bands or Nihiyawak, including the Pasqua, the Cowessis, and Ochapaways bands. So looking to the signing of Treaty 4, you cite evidence that First Nations people in the Northwest were keen to negotiate assistance in developing an agricultural base to ensure their economic security in the face of disappearing buffalo. And this is a, a key distinguishing factor to think about when we think about treaty negotiation because the government was keen to initially only offer reserves and, and yearly annuities on their side of the negotiations. So in the Treaty 4 agreement, there appears this conditional inclusion that stated that any band who is, air quote, actually cultivating the soil would be granted a certain number of agricultural tools per family to pursue agriculture. And it goes on to provide some detail, but it says something like two hoes, one scythe, one axe, enough seed, one plow and two harrows for every 10 families, that sort of thing. So despite this, why was agricultural activity minimal in the immediate years after Treaty 4 was signed in 1874? Well, it's uh, there's many I, um, there's many aspects uh, to an answer to that question. The first is that the implements and livestock um, and other promises proved uh, other items uh, entitlements promised in the treaties were inadequate. For example, ten families were to share one plow. And the, uh, the bands varied in size, numbering between 17 and 50 families, but each was still only offered one yoke of oxen, one bull, four cows. And all of this just proved you know, impossible to earn a living from the soil. You, you really, you needed a yoke of oxen at that time uh, for every farming family. So that was inadequate to what was promised. Um, and then the government officials proved reluctant and tentative about distributing even what was promised. And um, there were all sorts of problems in distributing them anyway. Nobody knew, well, who was in charge of this? Who's supposed to do this? A lot of this in Treaty 4 was left to a German-born surveyor, William Wagner, Wilhelm Wagner, um, who didn't know very much about Indigenous peoples of the West and their language. And he personally had the idea that he wasn't going to give them anything because he had the idea that they would sell implements or butcher cattle. So, um, you know, we, we have people like that making decisions that made it impossible to establish um, agriculture. The people really were um, anxious to farm, many of the groups, and they expected their supply of implements, cattle and seed uh, immediately. Um, but there was this very curious Laws that you that you mentioned in the question that they had to be actually cultivating the soil before they were going to get their uh, cattle and implements, and 
I still think a lot of research could be done and digging around as to how and why exactly that that clause was included in the in the text of the treaty. Um, I'm sure it wasn't anything that was agreed to orally at the treaty or was explained to them, but that was the, a curious clause, and it's found in other treaties as well. And it did uh, it did um, permit the government to be very parsimonious in what they what they did distribute. And it, it was based on this misrepresentation, again, that Wagner represents that they couldn't be trusted with their cattle and implements. They would sell them or, or, or eat their cattle. So th there were all these problems. People couldn't settle until the surveys were, were done. And the surveys, in some cases, took many years. And um, there were also problems with the quality and distribution of seed grain. In the earliest years, the seed arrived in a damaged state, sometimes wet, sometimes it had been frozen. And it was received in midsummer. And as we all know, you can't start sowing your seed in midsummer here on the prairies. And so acres were often idle because there was no seed available. Also a big problem in Treaty 4 was that there were no provisions in springtime to allow people to settle in one place to um, you know, just to, to, to plow and to, and, to, and to sow. The indigenous peoples of the plains for generations since ancient times had learned that the, um, to, to make a living on the prairies, you had to be mobile. You had to go where there, there were resources. You couldn't just stick it out, so you, you were not going to survive. And so this became a huge problem. The Treaty 6 people had negotiated for provisions at seed time. But the Treaty 4 people did not have those provisions at seed time. Um, and that proved to be a big problem. So once seeding was finished, and sometimes even before, many residents of these Treaty 4 reserves were, were out on the plains, and they had to leave behind only a few to tend their crops. There were other kinds of really specific problems. For example, the plows they were issued. Uh, by the late 1870s, Manitoba farmers had learned that American plows, particularly the John Deere, with its chilled steel moldboard, was far superior for Western conditions than the Ontario models. But the Indian Department, Department of Indian Affairs, continued until 1882 to purchase only Canadian manufactured plows. And this is all having to do with patronage and, you know, who's a conservative. And so they were going to buy plows made by good conservatives in Ontario's. There were issues about reserve farmers not having access to blacksmiths as if they did get implements and wagons uh, and they broke down, it was impossible to repair them. And then there was a big problem about simply getting inferior equipment and livestock, worn out, worn down old wagons and wild Montana cattle. And there was an actual investigation in 1878 into the commissioner of Indian affairs in Winnipeg, Provence, and he was found to have been really lining his own pocket by getting the most inferior goods and inferior implements and profiting on this and sending them out to the Treaty 4 and Treaty 6 uh, reserves. The most scandalous example of this corruption really is the wild Montana cattle that they were sent and they could not be hitched to the plow um, and they could not be stabled and they, they refused to be fed. Um, they froze over the winter, many of them, and many of the many of the First Nations people refused even to accept them and knew that they were being taken advantage of. Um, there's just so many other things. Um, 
With the disappearance of the buffalo, the main source for all their apparel had vanished, so they lacked clothing and footwear. And one official of, in Treaty 4 described this as the most important drawback to any work. How can you go out and work without anything to put on your feet? Um, and then there were all of the issues of hunger, weakness, illness, and people couldn't work no matter how willing they were. And I have a little bit of information about that, but a, a book by Jim Daszczuk called Clearing the Plains that's been out much more recently goes a lot more into that sort of deliberate starvation policy. Um, and that's something I could have done more on. I have a little bit of it and this really sort of mean work for rations policy that they established. Um, lots of other factors had to do with environmental issues that were shared with other settler farmers. For example, there was no early maturing variety of wheat until Fife was discovered. I have the date in here and I can't remember what it is, but I think treaty farmers were among the first to even experiment with Fife. Um, so there, that was a problem, frosts, hail, prairie fires, drought. They, they were just some terrible years. So there was very little progress in agriculture in the years immediately following the treaties. But early on, the government officials claimed that this had to do with the indifference and apathy of the people themselves. And the government claimed they willingly rejected an agricultural way of life. So you see how this be, it, you know, becomes a snowball that just, this is the explanation. It doesn't have to do with any of these other factors that might place the government in a bad light. It has to do with their idleness. They were creating their own problems. Um, they were chronic complainers. And that becomes almost the, what I would call the official mind of the bureaucracy. That indigenous people, if they said anything about any of these conditions that I just mentioned, were called chronic complainers. And that's where this really interesting Chief Pasqua, um, he's left a pictograph record of what he was promised and what he received. That pictograph record is now in the Regina Museum. Uh, he was a very prominent Treaty 4 chief, the son of a, a line of really prominent treaty chiefs. And he had gone in 1878 to Lieutenant Governor in, um, in Winnipeg, so it was a long trip for him to lay out all of these issues, mostly what I've just said, that why they can't establish agriculture. And he was just basically dismissed and discredited and said, well, go away and we don't believe you and you're just a, you know, you're just a chronic complainer. And it was so disrespectful and so dismissive of this very, um, of this very prominent treaty chief. Uh, but that was, that was the mindset that had taken hold already in, um, in this bureaucracy. Um, I just have a comment um, thinking about, you've already commented on, um, you know, parallels to, you know, imperialism in Africa. And, and just really recently, I listened to a podcast, a New York Times podcast, it's called 1619. And one of the episodes highlighted um, issues that black farmers faced in, in the Southern US and it so parallels exactly what you've talked yeah. about and how you know, that colonial and racist formula is just so predictably applied. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it comes back to, you know, um, in, in the case of these black farmers receiving loan payments far, far too long in the season for them to be able to purchase fertilizer and seed. And so, mm -hmm. uh, and then leads to the narrative of them being lazy. 
Yeah. And, and that, that leads directly to dispossession of land. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's just so predictable. And and yet, uh, as a society, we are we are taught, you know, um, again, this myth, this narrative that that, you know, these these groups of people were uns, unsuited to agriculture. But it, again, it's just this predictable barrier after barrier um, yeah. that has been imposed. And it's just yeah. it's remarkable. It's it's shocking, but not shocking, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's just, it's just crazy how it plays out time and time again. Yeah. Yeah. I have a vague awareness of that. Uh, and I've written that down that it's 1916 or what, what is it? It's called? 1619. 1619. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I'd really like to see that. I've just, I've been, I've been made vaguely aware of those similarities as well. And in mm-hmm. fact, one of the books that was really influential to me back, back, back was, a book by uh, John Selt, and he was a historian. He was he he compared uh, the Af- South African American agriculture in the South to uh, that in in South Africa, and he he did see all these parallels to how their the agriculture of of African Americans and Africans that you know that how they were deliberately um, uh, undermined in their yeah in their abilities to have their own land because their own land and to be farmers because they they were this valuable source of labor. So if they're going to be this valuable source of labor, they don't you don't want them on their own land and having their own farms and making their own food. Yeah. yeah. So that, they, these myths are just rolled out. And it's just so surprising that we all the settler people have tended to um yeah um, so easily believe them, I guess. Let's look to chapter four of Lost Harvests um, called Assault Upon the Tribal System, Government Policy After 1885. So this is where we see the rise of Hayter Reed. And these are my words that I use to describe him um, as an authoritarian, cruel dictator through the roles that he plays on behalf of Ottawa, eventually getting the title Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs. And you write that he was the, the architect of, of much of the policy as it relates to First Nations people after the rebellion of 1885. So Hayter Reed writes this policy memo in 1885 that incites the government to dismantle the tribal system. And he's, he's basically proposing these two concept, concepts. One, um, he wants to promote individualism and assimilate First Nations people into settler culture. So we don't have to deal with the First Nations people anymore. And he wants to control and restrict the activities of First Nations people. So I, I have a two-part question for you, Sarah. So he, he, in the text that you cite, he was so cruel. He's supposed to be, you know, liaising between the government and First Nations people, but he was so um, cruel in his disp- disposition towards First Nations people. So I was wondering if you could first speculate on why he was allowed to rule so long like he did. And then my second question is about the past system, which, I mean, it was so clearly a, a human rights violation on, on First Nations people ability to, to come and go as they please, but it also really worked to disadvantage them when it came to participating in the agricultural economy. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that too. Okay, thank you. Those are good questions. Yes, Hayter Reed did uh, hop out at, to me at a very early point in, uh, as, as um, as, a, as an intriguing person, but but puzzling as well because of just what you've said, and, and I agree, he was a very cruel person. 
I have a little bit been um, critiqued that I've, I've, I've created this uh, sort of villain and, um, and that he was not as cruel as all that, but I, I still do stick by my, my evidence that, um, that he was. And I'm not sure I can really answer why, why he was allowed to rule unchecked. I think we'd really need to have more and deeper studies of bureaucracies and how they function. He was really ambitious, um, determined. He was very loyal to the conservatives. And I think I create the sense throughout of how important patronage was and loyalty. Um, he was a friend of the very influential Edgar Dudney, who emerges a lot in the book as Indian commissioner, lieutenant governor, and so on. He was kind of the architect of the starvation policy. Um, so it was, Dude, his friendship with Dudney, I think, really helped him climb, climb the ladder. You'd have to go back into his background more about where he was from in Quebec and perhaps find out how he came to have these ideas about indigenous people from those sorts of influences. Yeah, born in Quebec. Um, maybe looking at his military background more closely. He was certainly always ready and willing to decrease expenses, knowing that that would please his superiors. And he didn't seem to care what consequences there would be for the people. Um, he was, you know, in, in asking why he was allowed to rule unchecked, he was certainly an ideas man, as you've just said, he had all those ideas after 1885 that are in that memo um, and that are, you know, that really were applied. This, you know, we're gonna have a past system. We're going to, we're gonna continue this past system. And we're gonna have um, divide bands into loyal and disloyal. And, and, and you know, he just, he made these sort of momentous decisions uh, that really impacted the future of these people for years to come. And then he was this, uh, you know, the peasant farming policy. So yes, he was an ideas man, but I think he, he had to have won the approval of those above him because of his coercive policies and racist attitudes. I don't think he was an outlier. He, he must have represented the opinions and policies of the network of officials that made up the Department of Indian Affairs. So um, they there do emerge in, in, in my studies over a long period of time, a few of these really ruthless and very determined and very ambitious men. Another is William Morris Graham, who uh, in, in another generation almost single-handedly ensures that throughout the prairies, uh, reserve land was diminished through really what became, what were illegal fraudulent surrenders. Um, he, Morris was quite um, convinced that that was in the public good to diminish reserve land. So there's a few of these that emerge. But the other question was about the past system um, and how it uh, infringed upon their human rights and how it worked to disadvantage them when it came to the agricultural economy. So the past system prevented people from leaving their reserves without the permission of the agent or the farm instructor. And this was a very powerful tool that lasted far into the 20th century it limited economic freedom. It limited your ability to make your own decisions about your own produce and about your own cattle, uh, where and when you would sell or butcher. But this was also combined with the permit system as a, as a very um, a, a very effective means of controlling just that as well. So the past system was always extra legal. It was widely recognized that the, it, this was 
in contravention of the promises made in the treaties that they would be allowed, not allowed, they were free to travel wherever. Um, and so it was, it was, it was, it was never ever encoded in any law or any, um, it was always extra legal. But the permit system was under the Indian Act. It was a particular clause and that prevented um, any First Nations person from selling his or her produce, um, a grain or a, a butcher, uh, any, any of their livestock or other kinds of resources, um, timber and, um, and, and that was a, a really uh, um, resented uh, tool that agents and farm instructors used to monitor and control people's economic activities, but also their movement off reserves. So the two were really combined. Um, and it was clear from the words of numerous indigenous farmers that, that this permit system undermined the interest in farming. And I quoted a few in the book and Winona and I have found in our more recent work that a lot of oral histories that just far into the 20th century uh, talk about how the permit system really undermined the interest of, of whole groups, whole bands in, in, in agriculture and cattle raising. So altogether the system functioned to, yes, deny people basic rights of freedom of movement and rights that had been guaranteed under the treaties. Wonderful, thank you. And of course, Melissa, we covered that in our conversation with you initially that the, the past system was in fact, it, was, it appeared in no legal framework, but it somehow was still imposed and continued on for a long time, like well into, um, you know, after the 1900s, so. I, we, can, we found, like I worked with Alex Williams on his past system film, and I'd been collecting, long after Lost Harvest, I'd been collecting material. And there's there's passes into the into the 1940s and beyond, and then they kind of switch. So they're 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 still passes, but they're not called passes in the sense. For example, you have permission to go to work in the sugar beet fields in um, as if you're you're living up in northern Alberta. You you are given a pass to go work in the sugar. It's not called a pass, but permission. But you, have, you can only be there and then you have to be back by a certain time. So Alex actually found a lot of that, that there's, there's a kind of morph into other ways of still monitoring and controlling. Mm -hmm. And also maybe it was the documentary where I was hearing that the past system was also used to limit parents trying to go see their kids at residential yes. schools too. Yes, it certainly, you know. it certainly was. Yes, they were. Um, and that was seen by the architects of schools as a big problem that parents wanted to visit their children. Mm -hmm. it, would, it would disrupt so, the whole thing they're trying to do. So. Yes, yes. So, and it, it was used to keep, I mean, a whole other set of books and articles I've written is about more about how the, is, is more about the past system used to um, ensure there were no indigenous women in, in, um, allowed in, in, in cities and towns. And because they were, there were a particular set of stereotypes that were applied to them, that they would be in town for no good moral reasons. Um, and it was a way of ensuring, I thought that, um, that there was no more that, well, the Métis had fomented two rebellions and they were make, trying to make sure that there was no further sort of 
um, development of Métis populations. And the past system was used, I think, in that sort of way to, make, to keep people separate, to keep them apart, to make sure there was no sort of, to prevent cohabitation and marriage and yeah, that's a whole other angle. Mm -hmm. Well, let's turn to chapter six, prelude to surrender, several tea and peasant farming. So in 1885, Hader Reed announces that reserves were to be subdivided into small separate farms, which was part of his attempt that we've mentioned before to disassemble reserves completely and force First Nations people into individualism and to some extent to eventually hope that settlers will have access to that land. So there's great opposition to um, the subdivision from band leaders and also Indian agents are also, you've, you've cited many that were opposed to that as well in your book. So after a couple of years, this effort ends, but not before a number of subdivisions uh, do occur. So then if we fast forward to 1889, Hader Reed as part of this big plan, he goes on for eight years to implement the peasant farming policy where First Nations farmers were forced into reverting their agricultural practices to that of peasants. So they were supposed to be farming, go back to farming with small and rudimentary tools on small pieces of land related to those subdivisions um, and do everything by hand. And this comes after these particular bands have finally seen some agriculture success. So they've they finally had some good harvests. So I guess I'm, I'm shocked again when I get to this chapter because after all these people have been through, you know, they've essentially these conditions have created poverty on reserve. They're then supposed to live and farm like peasants. So I was hoping you could tell us a bit about why Hader Reed pursued this peasant farming policy and how First Nations farmers received this as it was attempted to be imposed on them. Okay, thank you, yes. Uh, I guess I should say that he definitely used the word peasant. Uh, this, was all, this was part of his vocabulary that, that they, they should emulate peasants. But I, I kind of gave it the label peasant farming policy. Um, so I think what you have to realize is in the late 1880s and since 1885, homesteading, homestead entries, so immigration, has really plummeted. It's not just the resistance of 1885. It begins in, in 1883 with a, a really worldwide depression. And um, so Western Canada is really in trouble in the late uh, 1880s. Um, with very little settlement. A whole bunch has been spent on that railroad, the railroad that was to uh, bring carloads and carloads of settlers out and then take back their glorious grain crops. And, 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 um, and so none of this was happening. It's, it's called the national policies. The national policies of John A. Macdonald were failing in, uh, in the 1880s. And what was left was really kind of local markets. So who's going to be able to sell hay to the mounted police? Who's going to Who's going to get the? There was a lot of competition for the Indian contracts. Like who's going to provide rations of beef to the reserves? And this actually kept going and helped establish a lot of the biggest ranches in Alberta, for example, and in other locations. Um, is is the the Indian contracts they were called? So there was a lot of competition for those. Um, and it is interesting that the reserve farmers were doing comparatively reasonably well by the late 1880s. 
Uh, they'd been at it for a lot longer than other settlers. They had had to persist. They had no other opportunities. They were not permitted to homestead. Uh, they, had to, they had to make their reserves a go. And they were beginning to, and they were beginning to acquire some of the machinery, that, uh, the labor-saving machinery of the time. And so they were entering into the markets for, for hay and, and grain and others. So they were seen as posing a threat to competitors in the marketplace. And by the late 1880s, settler farmers in the West were loudly complaining about what they called unfair competition from First Nations farmers. And this is when another widely held belief linked to the ones I've already talked about, but this, this begins to really take root, the widely held belief that First Nations farmers had an unfair advantage, that they, they, settlers believed that reserve farmers were lavishly provided with implements and livestock and equipment and government labor and rations. And they didn't have to worry about the price of their products. And, and, and um, so this was a, another pervasive and useful settler uh, colonial myth. There was no appreciation among settlers of treaties. People don't seem to have had any conception of what treaties had meant. Very shortly after they were uh, uh, negotiated. And if settlers did have any idea of treaties, it was as if, well, why should they get that? We don't get that. And we're the real settlers. So, you know, this is not fair. That was the idea. Um, so there was no appreciation among settlers of, of, the, of the conditions reserve farmers operated on, um, how government regulation and Canadian laws had acted to stymie their efforts. One example that I use in the book is not from Treaty 4, but the settlers of Battleford were particularly strident. They didn't want the Cree the, 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 the of the neighboring uh, nations to be involved at all in the grain, hay, and wood markets. And they didn't want them to become successful stock raisers because the supply of cattle to the Indian Department for Rations was a vital source of revenue for many of the Battleford settlers. So the editor of the Saskatchewan Herald denounced any plan to set up, as he wrote, Indians as cattle breeders, encouraging them to supply the beef that is now put in by white contractors. So this is all happening and they're pressuring people like Hayter Reed. What can we do to make sure they don't participate in the market? And yes, let them raise what they can just for their families, an acre, a cow, roots, not grain, the, the, the most rudimentary of machinery. And so this is when Reed steps in to propose this peasant farming policy. And, and he had some sort of I don't know, rationales about you can't, you can't move people from a state of barbarism to civilization. And he saw this as a, a progression and that a mistake had been made in imagining that they could become successful farmers with up-to-date machinery. But I think that was just a rationale because he would have had the evidence right in front of him that they had successfully made this adaptation. So I see that the, the peasant farming is, um, as, as a way that they were trying to, yeah, keep their uh, production down. And he, he implemented it through, he, he was really, um, what do you call it? Someone who just takes care of every single detail. Um, so he went over accounts and he would not authorize the purchase, hire or use of any machinery, hate or read. And he, he 
insisted that even if the First Nations had purchased machinery before the policy was adopted, they were still to use hand implements. Um, and farmers that might, Indigenous farmers that had larger holdings were to use the labor of others, but not to revert to machinery. And they were to uh, only have the acreages that, that, um, that they could handle with hand implements. And so he, he also oversaw and he monitored the work of agents and instructors and he did threaten to fire them if they did not comply. And indeed, uh, he did fire people, the agents who did not comply. And a lot of the agents, I mean, in what we've just discussed today, I've kind of painted as um, um, a not very um, sympathetic picture of agents and instructors, but there were a lot throughout the West in this whole period that were quite uh, interested in working closely with First Nations to uh, improve and, and assist them in agriculture. And, um, you know, I can think of, of quite a number uh, and these people were absolutely dismayed at this ridiculous policy that made no sense in the conditions of the Canadian West when you had to get crops off quickly because of such issues as frost. And, um, and they actually had the implements and machinery and they saw their settler neighbors using them and yet they were told they couldn't. And this really did cause um, huge, um, I mean, Profound discouragement is what I wrote among uh, the indigenous farmers. And it was widely reported that many refused to work with the hand implements. Some gave up farming altogether. I really use the example of Louis O. Soup, who was a really successful farmer on the Calasis Reserve. And um, had, you know, there were articles admiring his work and he won prizes at uh, local fairs and and he's, he was my example of someone who just said, well, forget it. I'm giving this up. I'm going. And he actually left Calasis and went to Pine Creek to take up a life of, of hunting. Um, he does return eventually and leads a really interesting protest against the policies of the government. But uh, he, he had left his, his, his farm to his uh, son, um, Paul, I think is his name. And another farmer from this mountain declared he would let his, let his grain stand. He would never plow another acre. And another did give up his oxen, his wheat and, uh, and his reserve. So I argued that this was very, uh, very damaging. I mean, in some light, you could see it as only having been applied for a few years, 1889 to when, you know, Hader Reed is unceremoniously fired in 1897. But those were pretty, you know, if, if all of you who farm will know that you, you, living under these sorts of conditions for that, that's a long time to a farmer's life. And um, so I, I argued it was very discouraging. It's not the end of the story as I sort of, you may gather from Lost Harvest, like if you looked at each of those reserves in later years, there were ways in which there were other, um, you know, there, there was some of the damages repaired, some acreages are increased. So it's not the end of the story, but I argue that it was very discouraging at that time. Thank you, Sarah. Maybe before we, we end our time with you, this has been such a rich and interesting conversation. Why don't you tell us a bit about your new book that's coming out this fall, Ancestors, Indigenous People of Western Canada in Historic Photographs, which you co-authored with Inez Lightning, and as well where people will be able to find the book. Okay. 
Well, it will be out um, in September, which is, I guess, galloping up on us, and it's through the University of Alberta Press. So this, the story of this book is um, the, the, the Peel Library here, the Bruce Peel Special Collections Library here at the University of Alberta, over the last few years purchased a really amazing collection of historic photographs of Indigenous peoples of the Prairie West, mainly. And it was because a former chancellor, Ralph Young from Saskatoon, yay, uh, and his wife Gay were, were really interested in, um, in the history of the, of the Canadian West and in the indigenous history. And so they left this enormous endowment um, and a, a huge collection has been uh, purchased. They are all going to be up on the, um, on the World Wide Web through archive.org, internet archive, and they are there now already. And so I was asked to do a, um, to curate an exhibit of these photographs. And I invited graduate student in history, Inez Lightning, who's uh, from Armenskin, um, Masquiches, to, to work with me on this. And we've co-authored this uh, book of, um, of, uh, of, of photos and with also lots of text. And, and um, the exhibit itself should also be out possibly in September, 2021, but who knows what's really going on with all this COVID situation because the, it's in the Peel Library and it's a beautiful space, but it's a tiny space. So I hope that it will go forward soon. So it's, it's, the book goes along with the exhibit and um, Inez and I really wanted to uh, showcase the, the vast potential of these photographs to carry memory, to serve as windows into the past and educate people in the present. We did interview and talk to a lot of elders uh, to, to get their uh, views of the photographs and, and we had amazing insights provided us through elders. Um, and so many of them recognized not only their family members in these photographs, but they could say, you know, this particular beadwork design is one that is, is passed down in my family. Or this, you know, one um, Mr. Wolflake from Sixica said, oh, that's my teepee design. I have, uh, I now have that, that teepee design in a photograph of a teepee that's like from the 1880s. So we really, um, we really wanted to choose photographs that counter and challenge colonial narratives and stereotypes that they were vanishing, subjected or defeated. And we wanted to show how they can contribute to a richer, deeper understanding of the past. And we found a lot of strength, character, persistence and determination in, in these photographs and all sorts of insights into their work, humor, dance, celebration, uh, and so much more. So we talk a little bit about the colonial uh, practice of photography, but we don't dwell on that so much. Uh, we, we really wanted to see what elders wanted people to understand from these photographs. And so I think, um, well, we were, we, were, we were delighted that um, Dr. Wilton Littlechild, um, a TRC commissioner, lawyer, academic scholar, uh, for, also from Asquatchies wrote a, a great foreword uh, for the book and really thinks that it's, it does um, achieve these, these objectives. So we're very pleased at that. So yes, look for it in your bookstore soon. I hope. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, we will for sure. Thank you so much for telling us about it. And I'd love to see the exhibit in person, but the next best thing will be uh, the book and the, the online access that you mentioned. You can go to the Peel uh, Library, um, uh, Bruce Peel Special Collections Library website, and they're already putting up some, a poster about it and some snippets like Inez and I did little vocal um, clips where we talk about the collection and also we each I think took two or three examples of photos that we think really are interesting and um, what was so touching about the whole process was as I said ancestors people say may we talk to a Mr. Littlechild um, a different Mr. Littlechild and he just said oh yeah that's my family and there was like 15 people in the photograph that he that he knew like that this is my family and so that's we're just scratching the surface. It's not a repatriation project, but you can see how these, you know, really, you can develop a deep understanding of the history of the West through these photos and not just seeing them as colonial constructs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. And thank you, Sarah, um, for You're joining welcome. us today. We appreciate well, your time so much. I did cool down eventually in this room. And uh, <laughs> thanks for the invitation. And it was so nice to meet all of you. And Melissa, maybe we can meet up one day in, in the, we used to call it the hub, Saskatoon, hub city. That's funny, <laughs> I, haven't heard, I haven't heard it referred to that in a long time, actually. <laughs> well, all of my friends, we used to say, because we all scattered, basically, are you going to the hub this summer? And it was yeah. like it was, I think in the 50s, they promoted it as the hub city. All the roads lead to Saskatoon. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it would be wonderful to be able to connect with you in person once we're all able to do that again. And yeah, um, yeah it was really great to, you know, I'm really pleased that Hannah and, and Aaron had mentioned this to me and, and that there could be the chance to jump on on this call with you. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it speaks to, you know, 30 years later. Yeah. Uh, that this book, your book, your, your research still has incredible relevance as it, you know, as it helps to at least tell the story of where we are today. And I think, um, you know, there's still lots of gaps uh, in terms of what the, again, what the general public and the you know, settler society understands as to mm -hmm. Indigenous people's in, engagement in agriculture. And, you know, you talked about uh, Louis Osoup from Cowessis and, you know, it's important to, um, to note that Cowessis is still really engaged in agriculture and, and just right. recently they've started, um, they've started operating their own grain farm operation mm -hmm. on, on, on their own reserve land, yeah. on home reserve and, and mm -hmm. continue to expand acres through treaty land entitlement and, and, and not just them, other, other First Nations, um, you know, across Saskatchewan have, have done so. So I think, you know, it's really wonderful to, um, to get this work back, you know, into the conversation. And I think mm -hmm. also just, um, you know, emphasize that the story didn't end, uh, you know, yeah, and exactly. it continues to develop. So yeah. um, hopefully there's, there's more scholars that pick this up <laughs> and continue. Yeah, I hope story. so. I, yeah. I mean, a lot of the work that's being done, anything related to this is, is kind of in litigation, the cows and plows, um, the, those cases are becoming quite numerous now, so there's lots of work being done, well, by the Crown, of course, but also by others, you know, working for the First Nations. And so, uh, you know, a composite picture might 
might be emerging soon as, as so many of these settlements are, mm -hmm. are, are, are made. Yeah. Yeah. And including the land surrenders that you talk about as well. Oh yes. There's a lot of them in, um, that have been settled and a lot more that will be. Thank you. It was so special to have both of you on this conversation with us. So I can't, I honestly can't say thank you enough times. So we just oh, appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Actually, I enjoyed re going down old memory lane with all this. Well, thank you, Sarah, for joining us to talk about your book and for sharing your time with us. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into the second episode of the Diversity Imperative Summer Series. Aaron and I look forward to our next conversation in a few weeks time. Until then, have you been enjoying the Diversity Imperative podcast? Do you have any feedback to send? Let us know by visiting our website, diversityimperative.ca. And if you've been enjoying the show, we'd love if you would share it with a friend. The conversation also continues online. You can find Aaron and I at Diversity and Egg on Twitter and at Diversity Imperative on Facebook and Instagram.